Astonishing Legends would like to thank the Great Courses Plus, Simply Safe, Quip, Harry's, and our contributors at Patreon for making tonight's show possible. In 1953, a young actress with few significant credits to her name dressed up as her own fictional character for famed dancer and choreographer Lester Horton's annual masquerade ball. At the end of the night, over 2,000 people had competed for best costume, but none could top Myla Nearmi's wildly alluring, spooky and enchanting wasp-waisted character, Vampira. When Nearmi won that costume contest, a producer from KABC-TV, the local affiliate in Los Angeles, was there. His name was Hunt Stromberg Jr., and he knew he could develop a show around Vampira. Stromberg and Nearmi ultimately came up with a Vampira show. Nearmi would open the show by emerging from the fog, moving towards the camera, and screaming what would become a famous scream before she would say, Screaming relaxes me so. She would then go on to host and present a horror film, during which she would come back in the commercial breaks to crack jokes, make fun of her sponsors, play with her pet spider, drink cocktails, or pontificate about all things macabre on her now cult-famous Victorian sofa. The Vampire Show ran for just one year, from April of 1954 to April of 1955, after which Nearmi refused to sell her rights to the character to ABC and the show was canceled in spite of its wild popularity. Tragically, no surviving footage of the show beyond the original opening is known to exist, although some footage of Near Me in a character was later found and you can watch it online, which you should because she is spellbinding. Myla Near Me and Hunt Stromberg Jr. could not have known that the Vampire show would open the door for what would ultimately evolve into a cult genre known as horror hosting. Just two years after she went off the air, Universal Studios packaged 52 pre-1948 horror films together and released them into syndication for TV. This package was called Shock Theater and was marketed simply as Shock, with an exclamation point. It includes titles such as Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, The Raven, Secret of the Chateau, The Mad Ghoul, and The Frozen Ghost. We may never know who came up with the marketing concepts for Shock Theater, but someone there thought it might be a good idea for those movies to be presented by a host. Screen Gems, who handled the syndication, was in Los Angeles after all. It's not hard to imagine that the Vampire Show might have inspired them two years earlier. Whatever the impetus, that syndication deal opened the floodgates for horror hosts around the country to try their hands at presenting those movies to their local late-night viewers. Since that time, over 200 horror hosts have followed in Nearmi's pioneering footsteps with wildly varying degrees of presentational style. Horror hosts were initially only known in their respective local markets, as it was long before cablevision, satellite, and the internet. But television evolved and local broadcasting became national and then global. And the horror host became someone that wasn't just your best late night TV friend from back home, wherever that may be, but your best late-night TV friend you could watch from practically anywhere in the world. Tonight, we'll speak with a present-day, long-time horror host who can now be seen online, both in the U.S. and additional international markets, Joe Bob Briggs. In fact, when he hit the internet recently with a movie marathon at Shudder, a horror-centric streaming service, the resulting live viewership crashed all of their servers.
Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. If you hate what you're seeing, you call it sex and violence. If you like it, you call it romance and adventure. Joe Bob Briggs. Join us tonight for a historical look at hosting horror and an interview with one of our favorite performers in that arena working today, Joe Bob Briggs. That we are. You sound so excited. Um, <laughs> I actually am excited, though, because I am so ready for tonight's show. October was particularly dark this year. Quite dark. Ready to put it behind us. But don't worry. We will, in fact, be revisiting some of the unanswered questions from those shows next year sometime. But right now, it's time for an astonishing palate cleanser, or what I like to call an APC. <laughs> You just made that up right now, didn't you? I did, but I like ah. these little acronyms, right? We got the ARC, the Astonishing Research Corps. I thought we should have the APC, which uh. I think also makes uninterruptible power supplies, which, by the way, we need one. Mm. Um, seriously, I like these non-sequitur one-offs from time to time. I find them very refreshing, uh, like an amuse-bouche, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> okay, I know that's a real term. I'm just, now I'm very causcious about what you're saying here. Oh, okay. you're you don't know what an amuse-bouche is? No, I do. That's what okay. I'm saying. It's like, to a lot of people, maybe they don't. It's well, like, it's now like you're, a, you're freely making up words. No, no, no. Neologism. That's like a, like a nice little gift from the chef. Usually it's in a little spoon that you have right before your yes. fancy meal somewhere. Right. I am, well, my booze. It amuses your booze. Exactly. Yeah. That's <laughs> to say, well, let's just stick to a few tonight. Okay. Uh, well, a couple of quick program notes before we start tonight's APC, folks. Well, we're going to have to get used to that. This is the first of three shows in a row and a standalone topic. Next week, we'll be back with special guest Rich Hannum for a two-part series to wrap up 2018. Yes, one of those rare cases where we actually know it's really going to be two parts and we figured it out ahead of time. Uh, well, I wouldn't say that, but we just, we have to stop. Yeah, we have to stop. Yeah, exactly. So we'll just leave a bunch of stuff out. Just yeah. kidding. After that, we're going to be down for our customary holiday and year-end break, which is going to last about three weeks. That's the last two weeks of December and the first week of January. We will be dark those three weeks, but we will be back the second week of January with a new show. If you're new to the show and looking for more of our stuff to listen to over the holidays while tuning out Uncle Drew's politics at the dinner table, our seventh show ever, released way back in December of 2014, was about Krampus. And if you don't know about Krampus, check that one out. Although I will admit we were decidedly less polished back then. Oh, so different than now, right? Yeah, we're super, right. we're really on top of it. <laughs> Wait, there's a plane. Well, that's Cover. what I'm talking about. That's yeah. a good way. You know what? We'll just keep going. Uh, okay. All right. <laughs> by the way, there's other year-end theme shows, too, if you check our archives out. And the best way to do that is to look through those by title and date at our website under the archived podcast section, which is pretty easy to find. You can listen right there then, or you can just go to iTunes and find the old episodes by their title. Okay, where do we begin here? Well, before we get to Joe Bob, I feel like we need to talk a little bit more about all those who went before him because it really is an amazing trail of people. You're right. It's uh, American television history, really, and movie cinema history. So let's get into the history of horror hosting. And here's the funny thing about this. I knew that there were other hosts. You know, of course, sure, heard, of you course. know, there's Elvira, there's Goulardi, there's yeah. Vinguli, there's all those folks. And, you know, I watch Vinguli regularly these yeah, days, yeah, yeah. and I love all of them. But I didn't really realize that they were just a couple of people out of like 200 since 1950. It's well, yeah, unbelievable re how many. Regionally you're talking. Yeah, they yeah. were spread out all over the country, and that's what I love about it. But I really feel like, and based on, it seems to be the general consensus, is that Myla Nermi's character, Vampira, was in fact 
the first one. Right. And here's what's interesting to me about that. I want to talk a little bit more about her because she really was a pioneer, especially for, mm-hmm. for that long ago. She was a Finnish-American actress, and she had modeled her appearance for that ball that she won the costume contest after a character created by the famed illustrator and New Yorker cartoonist Charles Adams. That's A-D-D-A-M-S. And although Adams had not yet given a name to the woman in his cartoons that Nurmi was emulating, that character that Nurmi based her look on would eventually become known as Morticia of the Adams family. Uh-huh. And that was going to be developed into a TV show, but not for nine more years. So what had happened, he'd done like 300 panels of right. this family. It was a satirical look at the American sort of nuclear family at that time in the country. Right. And so he'd done 300 panels on that, and 150 of them actually did appear in The New Yorker. Mm. And she had seen it there. So she took that look and she went with it. But unlike Morticia, who didn't even have a name at that point when Adams was first drawing her, Myla Nermi saw Vampira as a glamorous single vampire. Morticia was part of the Adams family, kind of tied down. Right. A different character. Vampira would be curvy, campy, sexy, and outrageous. And Nermi was inspired also by the evil queen from Disney's Snow White, as well as famous silent film star Gloria Swanson. Well, we, we have, I will say, more than a few lady listeners out there who uh, really tap into that vibe. As yes. you can tell from their social media, they nail it. And yeah, that's, and that, where that's, that comes that's something from. I want to say. If right. you're into the horror host vibe and the idea of vamps hosting these movies and you really like that if you haven't looked into vampira you need to do it now it's pretty amazing there's actually a couple of really great documentaries out there one of the best ones is called vampira in me and it is available on amazon prime right now and then there is another one also on amazon prime that's about horror hosts in general and that one's called american scary Mm -hmm. And uh, those are both really great. So I would say check those out. You're going to love them. It's real good Christmas watching. It's like a goth, spooky, sexy Betty Page vibe, too. Yeah. There's something about that. It's playful, a little naughty, but entertaining. Well, yeah. And she was the first one to do that. She kind of was the original goth. Right, right. (laughs) On TV, anyway. Yeah, Yeah. on TV. It was pretty amazing. Here's the thing about her show. It's so sad that it's gone. But back then when live television ran, it was before videotape. And they had film... But what would happen is they didn't realize that anybody was going to want to watch something again or might want to watch it later. So the only way that you could get a live TV show, and you know this, was with a kinescope. The way the kinescope worked is it was a contraption that had a TV screen in front of a film camera. And there was all like one big box. And you would film what was coming off the screen live as it aired. And yeah. it, it looked horrible. And you can <laughs> tell, you'll know it when you see it, because if yeah. you ever see an old episode of The Honeymooners and it's right. really blown out, like it's really bright well, it'll, and crazy uh, looking. Yeah, well, they, well, they'll call a bloom. So yes. what's happening is the video camera, the iris on that, the way it controls the aperture, is not handling the changes in light to dark as rapidly as you would see it with your eyes or on film. Exactly. So it's trying to catch up to what's happening. So it doesn't look great, but it was a way to preserve something that was a live broadcast that they couldn't figure out how to do any other way. However, and that was around, but at the time they were only doing that on the East Coast, not just on the East Coast, but with an East Coast broadcast. They would do it so that they could delay the broadcast for the West Coast because it was three hours later. Right. So that was the only time they were doing that. But eventually... The shows started getting shot on film, which was more expensive, but 
there was this one particular couple who had a TV show that came up with the idea of reruns because they thought they could make money rerunning their shows. And everyone thought they were crazy because like you've, everyone's already seen it. Who wants to see it again? That couple was Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Mm -hmm. They invented the rerun and their idea for that. And the reason their show, the I Love Lucy show still looks so amazing today is because they shot on film and they knew it would be a cash cow for a long time. They probably didn't expect it to be this long, but you can still find that show on TV. And that's because they were doing that. However, KABC was not in a position to do that with the Vampire Show, for which Myla Nurmi was only paid $75 a week. Right. They're not going to shoot that on film. <laughs> no, but They're going to run it live. Yeah, no, <laughs> a terrible wage for back then. But what Scott's saying is that it's expensive to shoot on film, and that's the preservation method, because yes. if you saw something on TV back then, that was usually it. Like we were saying, if it wasn't kinescoped, it aired, it's over. You saw it, and then it was gone. So, and, be, and here's the sad thing. Now film is dead. Or dying. It's certainly yeah, it's certainly it's on life support. Here's it what happens now: place, like you're shooting everything yeah. digitally, and it's great, and you can right. shoot digitally cheap. But what if a solar flare comes along? It's going to wipe <laughs> out all our catalogs. That's true. You know, I yeah. guess everything's going to be underground. Hopefully, all those hard drives are in a salt mine somewhere. But anyway, it's the long-term preservation. They didn't have it, and that's the saddest thing about the Vampire Show. We don't have any of it to watch. There right. is one opening section and i'm not it's not completely clear to me where it came from but it is the opening it does have her we have a link to it coming out of the fog and she does her scream and she says screaming relaxes me so right hey have you heard we're on to a new lecture series over the great courses plus called history of ancient egypt it's one of their classics uh yeah because we get the same emails mm. but yes it is a classic and we always love to learn about ancient egypt and did you know there are different approaches to learning about egypt and egyptology uh yeah because we watch the same introductory lecture all right howard carter tell everyone about the different approaches wait are, are you saying i'm cursed maybe uh. Well, it depends on your biases, because even scholars have biases. So some study Egyptology as philologists, meaning they study the language. The Egyptians had writing very early on, so they left us a lot of it on their tomb and temple walls because they wanted the gods to know what they liked and were into. You know, a few of their favorite things. Mm. And then another approach is to study their art. They left so much really refined art, and what's interesting is that their art didn't really change much for 3,000 years, so it's all very consistent. The ancient Egyptians didn't value creativity or innovation. When you carved a sculpture, it was meant to be in a specific way, and it was meant to last for eternity. Yeah, and the idea of eternity was central because of the ancient Egyptian belief in an afterlife. It's a reason we know so much about their culture today. They were resurrectionists, meaning they believed that their literal, physical bodies would be active in the next world. And if that's the case, you want to preserve as much of your current daily life to use in the next. We can't wait to fully dive into this 48-lecture series that's so comprehensive, and we think you're going to want to dive in, too. But if ancient history isn't your bag, there's also so much other stuff to discover over at The Great Courses Plus, like how to take better family photos or improve your cooking skills this holiday season. And right now, as listeners to our show, you can get a head start and enjoy all that learning for free. Because for a limited time only, you can get a special free month of unlimited access. But to start your free month trial, you gotta sign up through our special URL today. So head on over to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends to get your free trial and start exploring. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Hello, everyone. I'm Petra Halikiopoulos, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. 
Now, here's what's even more amazing. I've seen a bunch of interviews with her at this point. She's passed away now, and she's actually at Hollywood Forever. I wanted to go visit her grave. The Hollywood Forever Cemetery is the cemetery that we went to in one of our very earliest shows with Mark DeAndre, who's yeah. our guest and friend. He is no longer working on the show because he went back to school and became a registered nurse in the yeah. psychiatric profession. Very that proud was, of him. Right. That was one of the cemeteries we went to. Yeah, that was one that of them we went tour. to. That's yeah. where Marilyn Monroe is and uh, a lot of other famous people. And now they have uh, movie nights there. Have you been yeah. to one of those? No, Still I have a lot of fun. Yeah, oh, I haven't, I haven't been in a that. couple of years, but people bring a picnic dinner. They show an outdoor movie. Oh, that's which, cool. It's not actually among the headstones. It's a clear space. Yeah, but I, I, I bet the dead there are glad to have the visitors, especially for movies. As many movie <laughs> stars are there, that's they true. probably love it. Yeah, well. Uh, well if you believe any of this at all. We'll but anyway, uh, that's where Myla near me is. And I, I definitely want to go and check her out there. I've probably gone right by her grave and didn't realize who she was. Yeah. But the other thing that's super amazing about her is that she cold read everything. She did not see the script before she got there. There was a teleprompter. And she said she would just walk out. They would be like, okay, the script's on the teleprompter and rolling. And then it would go. And she would go out and see the words and she would have to do it live. Mm. Uh, like, uh, yeah. what's his name? So, But she's a talented actress. And very, she kind of yeah. hit her groove here with this thing. Totally mesmerizing. Here's the funny thing, too. Just two years after Shock Theater, which you mentioned in the cold open, was initially syndicated, she herself had an appearance in the exact kind of film that has since been shown by every self-respecting horror host that's ever lived. Ed Wood's infamous Plan 9 from Outer Space, often called the worst movie of all time. <laughs> now, according to Nurmi, the dialogue that Wood had written for her was so bad that she convinced him to let her play the part without speaking. She assured him it was going to be a fitting homage to silent movies. Well, again, Gloria Swanson was one of her inspirations. Exactly. So there you there, go. And here's the other thing that's fascinating to me. Kind of the journey of the intellectual property that led to Vampira is fascinating because when you think about it, her origin for the look was Adam's cartoons mm -hmm. from The New Yorker that she had seen. Then she decided that she was going to take that because she described that character, Morticia, as kind of uh, tied down and flat-chested and boring. <laughs> so she was more like, no, I, I love this character, but I think she should be voluptuous and uh -huh. sexy and alluring. So she was bringing that to, and she should be single. She shouldn't have a family. So she took that and she morphed it into her own thing. Then she's doing the show for a year at KBC and she had been picked up in Life Magazine. She became internationally famous. That year, she was the it girl. In one of the documentaries she was talking about, I can't remember who it was. There was some big article or pronouncement about the two biggest stars in Hollywood the, mm -hmm. this one year, and it was like Gene Kelly and her. But even <laughs> yeah. though her show only went a year, and this is when I'm getting back to the intellectual property of it and how it got developed, then ABC realized they had a hit on their hands because she was coming an international phenomenon in all these magazines and everything. Right. And she wound up meeting all these people. There's a really famous quote that was hilarious about her meeting Orson Welles and her relationship with her mom because... Her mom had told her that, you know, she and Orson Welles could never be friends. And then when she met him, Orson Welles told her to tell her mom not to be so small-minded or something like that. So, Wait a second. To be clear, Myla's mother yes. told Myla yes. she could not be friends with Orson Welles. She wouldn't, yeah, because when she was younger, she was talking about how amazing he was. And she was hearing a radio broadcaster. Right, and he was talking right. either an interview or something. 
And she was like, he's amazing. And he's my friend or whatever. And, yeah. and her mom just poo-pooed that whole thing. Uh -huh. And then later she actually became friends with him and he sent that message back to her mom. So, and <laughs> there's more to that quote that's even funnier, but I'm not going to say it mm. here. So all of that is in the documentary Vampire and Me, which I would encourage everybody to check out. But what's interesting about that is that she refused to sell the rights to Vampira to ABC. Right. But they knew they had some, but she wouldn't sell the rights. So then they were like, fine, we're canceling the show. Yeah. And I don't know this. I don't want to get in any legal trouble here. This was a long time ago, but mm -hmm. I do know a little bit about Hollywood works. I'm sure the next thing they thought was, how can we knock this off? Yeah. Even though she had kind of already been inspired by Adam's cartoon, then she took that and ran with it and created something new with it. Then they wanted to buy it from her, and she said no. So then they canceled her, and they're thinking, how can they knock this off? And then the way they knocked it off was they bought the rights to Adams, the Adams family in uh, 1964 with John Aston and Carolyn Jones. And that, of course, went on to all kinds of different iterations, became a full-blown franchise. And it's oh, not sure. the only version of that. Well, uh, that goes to show, I believe, how iconic that character is, that type of vampire, the spooky, sexy, brunette character, because you also had Lily Munster. Yes. Played by Yvonne DiCarlo at the time, also an actress who is well-known and uh, hobnobbed with a lot of big stars, I think Tony Curtis. And that character, though, there is a spookiness, but it's an alluring and kind of sexy spookiness to it. And that character, again, keeps showing up in different ways. By the way, here's the other interesting tidbit. Charles Adams, the cartoonist, was married a few times. It's my understanding that his first wife also looked like Morticia. <laughs> okay, so there's there a lot of Morticia yeah. things going well, on here. Morticia, Vampira, Right, like, well, like I said earlier, again, the place for that kind of voluptuous brunette, you, you see that in Betty Page. Yes. And you see her being lauded today by a lot of young women, too. They see her and they, and they say, wow, that is kind of advanced for the time, Betty in her own way. But also, as Myla said, it's a bit of a counterculture reaction to the 50s mom because it was presented at the time. This is what you should be doing. This is the right thing to do. It's like, well, not every woman wants to do that. Yes. And so here's an alternative. Exactly. And of course, a lot of men find that appealing as well, then and now. Yeah. So the vamp was born. These women all did amazing jobs at it. And of course, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of different horror hosts here uh, in our run up to Joe Bob's interview. But later Elvira came along and Elvira is Vampira. I mean, yeah, they are that's, the, that's my point the same, exactly. And Nurmi was alive to see Elvira become what she was, Cassandra right. Peterson, who I'm pretty sure was also a groundling originally. Uh, that's, yeah, I think yeah. so. My wife was in the groundlings for a while, so I remember that they used to talk about that around the theater. But she may have been the, the generation or class before that, I think. Much before yeah, my wife, right, yeah. Right. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> a lot to, before. Yeah, yeah. No, not to, not to cast age aspersions on anyone, but I saw a quote with Nirmi where she was like, oh yeah, she's aping like 80% of my moves here, you know. Nirmi said, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's like, what are you going to do? And it's sad to me, too, that back then... Nirmi couldn't port what she had created over to something bigger because they basically iced her out of the deal and moved right. on. But of course, they're moving on with what had originally inspired her in the first place. So that maybe that's some kind of karma. But in another way, I never felt like she was necessarily really ripping Adams off because she took it and made it into something else. So it's a little vague, but I feel like she kind of got railroaded because, right. you know, when she got older, she didn't have a whole lot. So... It could have been so much more, and she is so famous. She's a cult hero in certain circles. Sure. You know, a cult famous. So, yeah, we also have um, a lot of horror aficionados in our audience, and yeah. they will maybe recognize that if, if they study the history of it at all. That character that she created, it's the female counterpart to Dracula. 
Yes. Who also in his male form has a lot of sexuality and alluring danger. Yes. Uh, he's going to take your life. She might, but you're going to have fun. You know, that's, <laughs> that's kind of what's right. And Cassandra Peterson, Elvira, when she came on the scene, she was a lot more, I, I would say, probably campy about it. Of course, yes. with, with the cleavage that had the stage makeup, well, the delineation. She was yeah. deconstructing it even more. Exactly. Yeah, taking exactly. it to its next level. And right. Of course, they were always breaking the fourth wall, but Elvira stood, like, came out into the audience. Right. You know? So right. that's, and that's what's really cool. And she's still around, by the way. She's, you know, and she's yeah, amazing. Yeah. I used to watch her as well. One of the other things, you know, before we move on to all the folks that came after Vampira, one of the other things that I'm pretty sure Vampira pioneered and this was cursory research at best, but is this brutal honesty in hosting the films. She was not afraid to make fun of the actors in the films, the mm -hmm. films themselves. She was punk in that way. And yeah. that is something that stuck for all of the people that came after her. But the interesting thing about that is a lot of folks that came after her didn't know about her because right, she right. only ran in the Los Angeles market. So sure, there were some people that were probably aping her right. or using her moves and, and bringing their own thing to the table, but there were other people that just had no idea about any history of horror hosting. Yeah. And what that says is that there's something about this whole movement that it's like necessity is the mother of invention when it comes to, hey, we don't have a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. We got to talk about these movies. And a lot of people would just put on these crazy outfits and they'd come out and tell all these jokes. And sometimes they're racy jokes and they're up right, late at night. Right. And they're doing a lot of the same things that Mylan Yermi did, some of them knowing and some of them not knowing. But for whatever reason, there seems to be this trend for charismatic and kind of wacky actors who find their way into this particular subgenre. They all kind of do things that are rooted in the same inspiration for whatever right. reason, whether they know it or not. Apparently, it just feels good if, if you're <laughs> well, in that position. The horror genre in movies and TV is, I know genres are their own things, like Westerns are or war movies, but horror really is its own culture as well as thematic genre. Now, here's a fun fact. I'm not sure if it's totally true, but we learned this in film school, is that uh, Universal, one of the studios at the time, didn't have the big bucks that the other studios had. So they had limited resources. So they kind of got into shooting horror movies because in horror, it's dark. You don't need as many lights. Lights cost money. And so it was cheaper for them to shoot these kinds of things. And they ended up making some great horror movies and, you know, a lot of funny, goofy ones at the time as well, because that's part of the charm of the genre is that, yeah, it's, it's spooky. I mean, nowadays, of course, there's a lot of it's pretty gory. But back then, there's a lot of camp to it and a lot of good natured fun. And it was scary for the time. Yeah. But there's also a lot of humor that goes into it. I remember all the Abbott and Costello movies. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, meet, meet the Mummy and, you know, meet uh, Frankenstein. And so it goes hand in hand because since it is so scary, it needs some levity sometimes. Well, exactly. And that's where the horror host came in. They kept it grounded. And this was something that worked even better later as horror movies got scarier and scarier, like right. you pointed out. Well, you know, when we get to the later stuff where things really started to change, Night of the Living Dead and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre yeah. and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And when you had somebody coming in on those breaks and making a bunch of silly jokes and kind of reminding you, hey, look, it's all OK. This is just a movie, folks. Exactly. It's just a movie. <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. and that's what was really amazing about it. And you think about this because those local markets, they wound up 
you know, everyone was isolated. And so the movies would get sold in these syndication packages and then local stations would buy them and then they would bring in a host to run it. Initially, they didn't care who it was. It mm -hmm. was it's late night TV. They couldn't sell ads then anyway. Right, if they right. brought somebody in, let them do whatever they want. If we get 10 bucks for this ad, great. We were off the air anyway. Yeah. But now they got these guys coming in and it turns out people are wanting to watch them. More and more people are wanting to watch them. And they're realizing, well, maybe they are best left not being messed with. And maybe mm -hmm. we're turning a blind eye a little bit on purpose to what they're doing. And there's a lesson here, by the way, when you have creative people who are trying to do work and you're the person responsible for distributing it or the, or the company responsible for distributing it, a lot of times you get better work when you leave the creative person alone. Now it's more of a risk <laughs> and they don't want to take that risk. Right. And this goes to a whole bigger thing about what's going on with movies today and music and anything creative. It's like everything is, well, is it going to be a hit? Well, let's not do it if it's not going to be a hit. Right. Let's not take that chance. Let's not take a creative chance. But they did that. They let these folks do that at night and people went crazy for them. And they were able to convert that downtime at night into more revenue for their local TV stations. To your point here, when there's a balance, when there's creative freedom, but also, look, artists <laughs> notoriously aren't great with money. They yes. need to be reined in a little. <laughs> Tina Fey, I, I love that quote. She, you know, she's not a dream furtherer. She's a dream killer. She's going to tell <laughs> you you can't do a few things because it doesn't make sense. So it needs that balance. But look at Netflix and Amazon Prime and all these studios that are producing original content now because they are giving this freedom to the artists. That's where the artists are going. Yeah, that's and right. What they're you have they're then, stripping away all of those systems that have, they've evolved, unfortunately, into too much oversight in a lot of cases. You're getting creative direction from people who aren't creative. Yeah. They're business people and they're creative at that. Right. But artistically, you know, when I used to edit movie trailers, you got notes from people who, they know how the business of movies work. They don't know how the movies themselves should work. And right. it doesn't always, doesn't always work. So the idea, though, is this genre, when it was kind of left alone, evolved into its own thing. And as we just said, some of it's really high art, in a sense. Some of it is high camp and right. high goofiness and plan nine from outer space. But even then, it has its own artistic value at being terrible. Well, and that's why the horror hosts in these movies go hand in hand. They are both the outcasts. They're both these collective groups of creative people who have been left alone because nobody thought they could get rich on it, so they weren't really paying a whole lot of attention to what people were doing. And then this punk underground rose up and became a thing. I was looking at the Wikipedia page for uh, notable horror hosts. It's just the notable ones. There's yeah, plenty right. that we probably don't even know existed. <laughs> There's 168 people on the list from that, the 1950s yeah. to today. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. And I feel bad. I wanted to name some of them. I know I'm going to leave some of yours out. I know there are people in our listeners. They're going to be like, oh my God, you got to talk about <laughs> so-and-so. But here's the ones that stood out to me on these the list. The, yeah. These are the major, semi-major, mid-level city markets. Yeah. We have to start with I mean, of course, we've already talked a great deal about Vampira. We have to talk about Goularty. Oh, of course. He's a voiceover actor out of the Cleveland area. He later moved to Los Angeles. And he had a really amazing show. He was very irreverent. He would actually make fun of the audience 
<laughs> like, who is watching this schlock? And he had this <laughs> yeah. unbelievable voice. And actually, he later, when he moved to Los Angeles, he became a major high-level voiceover guy. He was the guy who was like, always would tell you what was going to happen on the love boat this week. Yeah. You know, yeah. On the love boat. And his voice, just unreal. Yeah. yeah. And he also had kind of a famous son. Yes, he did. His son, uh, Goulardi's real name, and he's the pioneer that a lot of people think about who probably didn't even know about Vampira because she came along uh, so long before him. But Goulardi's real name is Ernie Anderson, and his son is Paul Thomas Anderson, mm -hmm. the film director. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure a lot of folks don't know that. There Will Be Blood, The Phantom of Thread. Yes. A lot of uh, really... Magnolia. Exactly. So wow. he's really made a name for himself uh, with artistic film here in L.A. Yes. The reason that Paul Thomas Anderson is out in Los Angeles is because Goulardi came here. Yeah. Presumably, I don't know for sure, but, but you know, would came here for his voiceover career after being noticed as Goulardi in Cleveland. We also have Zacherly, who came out of Philadelphia. We have Baron Damon out of Syracuse, Svinguli out of Chicago, and mm -hmm. I'm still watching Svinguli. But here's the <laughs> yeah. thing. The Svinguli that I watch these days is the second one. The first Svinguli was a television personality out of Chicago named Jerry G. Bishop. And he was Svinguli from 1970 to 73. Now, during the time that he was Svinguli, there was a guy who was mailing in jokes or faxing in jokes, you know, this kind of like Letterman style almost. And his name was Rich cause. And when Jerry G. Bishop left, Jerry said, hey, this kid's been sending in these great jokes or whatever. If you're going to keep this going, he should be Svinguli. Yeah. So I think initially he was son of Svinguli, but finally they were just like, no, he's now Svinguli. <laughs> and, um, and I'll confess, not being from the Chicago area, I thought that Svinguli was the current Svinguli who yeah. is Rich Cause. I yeah, didn't yeah. realize, I wasn't going to admit this on the air, but I'm going to go ahead and admit it. Because I have <laughs> this Svinguli t-shirt and everything, yeah. which uh, Forrest got for me. Thank That's you right. It glows in the dark. Yes, it's got the just official, like shirt. Official chicken thrower yes. on the back. You always have to have a gimmick or it helps. Everybody has some like silly joke they can always go back to or call back to. Right. Uh, even Vampira had Rolo the spider. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Everyone had like, you know, somebody yeah. had a frog. I can't remember who it was. But yeah. I mean, so yeah, going on, we also have Stella out of Philadelphia, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, Elvira. Ira, who we mentioned in Los Angeles. Oh, there yeah. was John Stanley, who actually was the second host of Creature Features in San Francisco. Baron Von Wolfstein out of Indianapolis. <laughs> Count Gore Duvall, which I guess is a <laughs> Gore Vidal thing. Yeah. yeah. He was in Washington, D.C. We have Son of Ghoul, Akron, Dr. Gangrene, Middle Tennessee, Mr. Lobo, Cinema Insomnia. That's nationally syndicated. He's more of a recent guy. And, uh, of course, you have to mention, it's a little bit different, but you have to mention MST3K, yeah. Mystery Science Theater 3000. if you're going to skip that, but it's, no, I'm it's not. very it's, critical. It is critical, and it's, it's a different thing, and it's interesting. Tonight's guest on the show, Joe Bob Briggs, talks about MST3K in the American Scary documentary, has some very interesting things to say about it. And then Joe Bob, who we're having on tonight, has been on TV several times in several different iterations. He had Joe Bob's Drive-In Theater, which was on the movie channel right. originally. He had my Monster Vision, which was on TNT, which is part of what, for me, I think, I mean, the movie channel was available nationally, but you had to subscribe if you wanted yeah, to see it. Yeah. TNT was also part of a Cablevision package, but a lot of people had it. And that's when I found Joe Bob. Right. And then recently he has been hosting some marathons on Shudder, which is a streaming website that is all horror films. And we're going to be talking about that tonight, too. He had uh, The Last Drive-In on Shudder and another one called Joe Bob's Dinners of Death. And now he has a special <laughs> one coming up for Christmas, which we'll tell you about in a little bit. Mm. By the way, I have to mention, 
mention because there's some people in the uh, Astonishing Research Corps. Like everyone has their favorite who are oh, going to sure. uh, – Chili Billy. Uh, <laughs> he was a host of uh, Chiller yeah. Theater in Pittsburgh. Right. His name is uh, Bill Cardill, and he was a man of many talents. He hosted game shows, wrestling, weather, all that stuff. And that's my point about they kind of just brought in whoever, but he turned out to really excel at this. And all of these guys excelled at this. And everyone has their local favorite. Everyone has oh, that person sure. who feels like a friend. Well, you grew up with them. They yeah. spent a lot of late nights with people. Exactly. You're up, you're staying up late. It's the same thing with Saturday Night Live. And oh, by the way, Stella, who had the show in Philadelphia, her show was called Saturday Night Dead. So, and and that <laughs> yeah. was really great. And it was particularly campy, like really lots of double and even triple entendres. You would not believe the jokes that she got away with. Right, right. And I'm taking this observation from Darren Wilhite, who's a radio personality in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. He made this observation in the American Scary documentary, which I thought was really poignant. But he was just talking about how it's the kind of stuff you want, you know, your parents are asleep. The lights are out in the house. They think you're in bed, but you're not. You're up (laughs) and you're sneaking a little bit of television. And what you're seeing is you're staying up late and you're watching some super scary movie you're not supposed to watch. You're a kid. You're not watching that stuff. And it's hosted by your crazy best friend. Guy's going to come in and tell all kinds of jokes that you're a little bit too young to hear and make jokes about the horror movie. And you feel like if you get caught, you're going to be in trouble. (laughs) <laughs> and that, that is like, you know, you're in the trenches with this person. Yeah. It's a very personal connection with the person on the TV. Exactly. Which is how I feel about Joe Bob. But I didn't say yeah. that to him. Uh, I was trying to make it, oh yeah, I just want to ask you some questions for my podcast. <laughs> you didn't geek out. I tried not yeah. to geek out. But uh, yeah, yeah we, we both refrained because, well, for me, you know, I, I see him in the vein of other respectable movie reviewers and well, having gotten a a degree in that that's like uh, he's on the end of the spectrum that i respect and appreciate as much as the overanalyzed intellectualized overblown often end of movie reviewing which again i i love pauline, isn't that, uh, pauline isn't that kale what's your degrees in <laughs> that's what, <laughs> no and that's why i, I feel like and i can speak to this because yeah. you can talk about all these things that are really i think over intellectualized to a degree where most people don't give a crap yeah and then what you know so it's for a certain group of academics all fawning over themselves about how smart they well are. that's like criticism of any art really exactly. i mean you can find that with paintings you can find it with writing you can right. find it also with movies right But that's where Joe Bob comes in is because he's a critic for the everyday person who they're going to understand and get and have fun. And that should be the point. You should have fun with this. But one thing I wanted to say as far as this being so close to people's hearts that got into the genre, not everyone has because it's not everyone's cup of tea. But I remember Lenny Bruce, the famous comic from the 50s and early 60s, cemented his place in history, did a lot of bits about cheesy horror movies. Like he yes. did a Dracula bit, like I'm going to grease up the pillowcases. You know, it's like he had these bits that he would do. And the reason that was such a favorite genre of his is because as a comic, you know, he'd do these jazz clubs and you get off at one, two in the morning and you're wound up, you're full of energy and there's nothing to do in town. This wasn't the 24 hour world that we live in now. So the only thing that was usually open was an all-night movie theater running like a double feature of really bad horror films. Yes. So he'd go watch those to kind of unwind before he started doing heroin. <laughs> but, but he would unwind, and so all these were kind of imprinted and became beloved to him, and then he would do bits about them. It's a little bit of an illicit joy, a guilty pleasure that sticks with you. And what Joe Bob does is that he celebrates that and lets us enjoy it. 
A chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Uh, hold on here. Are you are you trying to do some kind of annual review for me? No, no, no. no. If it was your annual review, it'd be much worse. No, geez. no. I, I, I just got to thinking about how that phrase reminds me of simply safe home security. <laughs> well, actually, that expression is a simplification of a longer, more complex one written by Scottish philosopher Thomas Reed in 1786. No, no, no. no, no. In his book, that's not what we're doing right now. Oh, oh, what, we're not doing that right powers now. Powers of man. No, okay. no. Forget all right, it. All right, all right. Listen, this is my point. That expression, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, perfectly represents one of the reasons that I think Simply Safe Home Security is such an amazing product and service. Because those guys have really thought of everything when it comes to keeping you safe. If a storm takes out your power, which is happening more and more lately, Simply Safe is ready. An intruder cuts your phone line, Simply Safe is ready. Someone destroys your keypad or siren, Simply Safe will still get you the help you need. And here's what I love about that maybe it's overkill. Maybe it's the last thing you want to think about this holiday, but there's no weak link in the Simply Safe chain. And that means when you have Simply Safe, you can rest easy. With Simply Safe, you're always ready for anything. They believe nothing should get between you and protecting your family. And that's why Simply Safe doesn't cost an arm and a leg. Honestly, I was surprised at how affordable they were. In fact, they were significantly less than the system I used to have, coming in at just $14.99 a month. There's no contracts, no markups, no installation window, because you can have it up and running yourself in just minutes. It's easy. We recommend Simply Safe Home Security to all of our friends, especially during this holiday season when we all have everything to be thankful for and everything to protect. And today, you can save hundreds of dollars on that protection if you go to simplysafe.com slash A-L. That's simplysafe.com slash A-L. Make sure to use that URL because that's how they know we sent you. But hurry, this holiday offer's ending soon. simplysafe.com slash A-L. I'm Elijah Hershey. And I'm in Salem, Massachusetts, and when I'm not searching for thin places or giving psychic readings, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show. Well, and that's good that you bring up Joe Bob, because this is where I want to make a distinction between what he has done and what a lot of other horror hosts were doing especially in the early days. Mm -hmm. A lot of them didn't know a thing about film. Right. And how could they be expected to? Like I said, poor Vampire, and I don't know whether she knew about the movie she was talking about or not. I haven't seen her episodes. Nobody has. Mm -hmm. You can only talk about them. But, you know, $75 a week, you shouldn't have to bring a lot to the table. And she brought way <laughs> more to the table than, than people bargained for oh, for that. Oh, no. She but, offered a lot of, let's say, visual excitement and uh, bang for your buck. Yeah, exactly. And so did a lot of these hosts. They all did. They came with these crazy costumes, whether it's one black lens and the glasses, you know, stick on goatees, wacky right. hats and outfits. And like you said, and, you know, Spingoolie's <laughs> rubber chicken, it's all in good fun. Sure. But for a while, they weren't expected to know a lot about films. But then these certain horror hosts started to creep into the business that did know about film. And it evolved to its next level. It's a natural evolution. This right. is a creative evolution. There's nothing right or wrong about who was doing it a certain way before or later. I agree. But, but what happened is these folks started getting involved who knew what they were talking about. So on top of being silly and making all the jokes and holding your hand through the scary movie, they were now able to tell you some really cool stuff about the movie. Well, that's what's fun. Yeah, because yes. it's knowing the backstory and, and what was really going on and the motivations yes. without knowing the, you know, archetypical symbolism going on in the shot. Yes. That's and it's fun too, but but really just tell us the, the nitty gritty and some of the fun anecdotes that go along with the movie. Right. And so what was fascinating was the culmination of all this. It's for me, it's like Joe Bob Briggs is one of the best examples of some 
somebody who's not just doing that character and has all the trappings of the horror host, he also has the knowledge and the background to tell you everything you need to know about the film at hand. Of course, now it's the age of information. He's been doing this for a while, and he was one of the ones that was on the cusp of being able to be nationally broadcast pretty much right out of the gate because he was part of the birth of Cablevision. Right. And so being on TNT, you know, this character from Texas that Joe Bob Briggs is, he was someone that everyone got access to, including me. And that was something that I really enjoyed. I was like, oh, wait, wait who is this guy? And like... Elvira or Svengooley or whatever, he had his set and he sat in his chair and he had on a cowboy outfit and mm -hmm. he was accessible, but he also really knew what he was talking about. And he told really funny <laughs> yeah. jokes and he wasn't afraid of controversy. So, you know, I don't want to say who's got more knowledge about filmmaking and, and particularly B-grade filmmaking than anybody else in the arena. But I can tell you because I have watched a lot of Joe Bob that the man knows what he's talking about. And in American Scary, one of the two documentaries we keep referencing tonight, Joe Bob actually mentions John Stanley, who was the second host of a show called Creature Features in San Francisco. And he said that John Stanley's book, Creature Features, The Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Movie Guide, should be the book everyone who's into this stuff should have. Joe Bob said in American Scary that Stanley probably knows more about these movies than anyone alive. So having Joe Bob say that Stanley is the most knowledgeable guy alive on horror movies, that's really quite a compliment because Joe Bob himself wrote a 22,000 word essay just on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> and that's why we're so thrilled to have him on the show tonight. He is one of the best. And I grew up watching him on both of his first shows, uh, the drive-in theater on the movie channel and also Monster Vision on TNT, which, like I said, really brought him to the masses. And the thing about him is that he's a way deeper guy than you think. In fact, Joe Bob Briggs is just a character created by a man named John Bloom. And John Bloom, as we said earlier, actually has a background in journalism. He's Pulitzer Prize nominated, well-educated, a respected film critic, and not afraid of controversy. I actually want to read this section on him from the Wikipedia page on him. We don't always do this, but I do love how this sums him up. Briggs' acting persona is that of an unapologetic redneck Texan with an avowed love of the drive-in theater. He specializes in humorous but appreciative reviews of B-movies and cult films, which he calls drive-in movies, as distinguished from indoor bull stuff. <laughs> Quote-unquote. Quote-unquote. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In addition to his usual parody of urbane, highbrow movie criticism, his columns characteristically include colorful tales of woman troubles and high-spirited brushes with the law, tales which inevitably conclude with his rush to catch a movie at a local drive-in usually with female companionship. Briggs revealed in an interview with James Rolfe that he intended the character to have an ambiguous-sounding name and initially thought of calling himself Bubba Rodriguez, but was told that the name Rodriguez would be perceived as racist and he decided to go with, quote, the whitest name I could come up with, <laughs> end quote. Yeah. The reviews typically end with a brief rating of the movie, including the types of action, represented by nouns naming objects used in fight scenes suffixed with foo, the number of bodies, number of female breasts bared, the notional number of total pints of blood spilt, and for appropriately untoward movies, a vomit meter. Ugh. A typical summarization would read, quote, 
no dead bodies, 117 breasts, multiple aardvarking, lap dancing, cage dancing, convenience store dancing, blindfold aardvarking, blind man aardvarking, lesbo foo, pull cue foo, drive-in Academy Award nominations for Tane McClure. Joe Bob says check it out. Uh, so that go. tells you a fair amount about Joe Bob. I love the foo. There's all different. Any kind of fight becomes foo. Well, again, that's, <laughs> that's part of the era of the 70s. Kung fu movies were big. Yeah. And... I saw a lot of them at the drive-in with my parents, and that's, we talk about this in the interview. There's kind of a nostalgia, without the negative effects of nostalgia, but the heartwarming ones, where the drive-in theater was an American tradition and a rite of passage for so many of us, and just a cool thing when you didn't care that the screen wasn't 4K. Yes. The speaker was a Horrible. mono speaker that hung on your window. And a lot of people don't know this because they've all closed down. I think there's two here in Southern California yeah. still running. Yeah. But imagine this, kids. You're in a car with your sweetheart. You're enjoying a movie and there's no parents around. Yeah. And you just have to be home by 10 or 11 and you can catch two movies for like three or four dollars. And what goes on in your car is between you and whoever you're with. <laughs> and the movie is part of that experience. And yeah, it's relegated to the B level and C level of movies, but it's really a special thing that's just gone now. And that's part of the charm of Joe Bob is that he brings this back. He's there being hilarious and insightful. And like you said earlier, your buddy to watch a scary movie with and have some fun and to bring you out of the, the scary bits into laughter. And then we can all laugh at ourselves because it's a reflection on society. But the drive-in movie theater, uh, and again, look it up. If, if you're younger and you don't know anything about what we're talking about, look it up. It's just a fun idea. That's where Joe Bob shined. And it's not just horror because he moved away from that at a certain point, because, you know, drive-in movies weren't just all horror. They were kung fu movies, action movies, second run or third run movies that were now out of the theater. Of course, that included horror, but it's an experience unto itself. And now to hearken back to what Joe Bob often says during his hosting presentations, let's get back to the film. Yeah, except that we, we can't actually go to the film because he never goes back to the film after he says that. He then talks some more, which is <laughs> exactly, what I'm doing right now. Exactly. But you know what we're going to do? Joke, yes. We're going to play the interview with him. We're on with uh, Joe Bob Briggs, who has been, I guess, an inspiration to me for a long time. I'm old enough to have been able to watch Monster Vision and really enjoy it back in the day. We're just thrilled to have you on, Joe Bob. I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. And so I guess what I want to do with our listeners is maybe start out with um, how you kind of got started and, and where everything began for you. Your first show was Joe Bob's Drive-In Theater on the Movie Channel, right? Yeah. Um, I wrote an article for um, Rolling Stone magazine on uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. And at the time, the Movie Channel was looking for a host to come on and introduce some uh, crap that they had bought over in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> some movies that were kind of unsaleable. And so they needed an, a guy who likes exploitation films. And so they asked me if I wanted to come on and guest host, I think, a month of films, like four weeks of um, double features on a Friday night. So I did it. It was me in a Lazy Boy recliner with the steer horns on the back. That was the complete set. It was just a close-up of me staring right down the camera. <laughs> and uh, we did four weeks, and they said, why don't you come back next month? And I said, sure. So I came back the next month, and then they said, why don't you come back the next month? And so I came back the next month, 
And I just kept coming back every month and I was there 11 years. So, <laughs> And you didn't have a contract that whole time? Were they just month to month in you? Well, or? I, I think like the fourth or fifth year we started like making a contract and I think we would get to the end of the year and it still wouldn't be signed. So we would start the one for the next year. And I don't, That's I'm not great. sure I ever had a signed contract at the movie channel. A lot of people don't even know what the movie channel is. Uh, yeah. It's the ugly stepchild uh, partner of Showtime. <laughs> you know. Yeah. If you have HBO and Cinemax and Showtime and Stars, and you want one more premium channel, you get the movie channel. <laughs> <laughs> when you first did that, had you been on camera before, ever? Not really as a performer. Uh -huh. You know, I'd done interviews and things, but I, no, not really. I did some live shows before that, but uh, that was the first time doing real TV Right. And, you know, there was no show, really. It was just introducing the movie. And then we would just add one element at a time. Hey, why don't we do this? Hey, why don't we do that? And uh, they hired some other hosts at the same time. And those hosts eventually all got fired. And finally, it was just me with my little set in the middle of this big empty studio in Spanish Harlem. And I said, guys, you're wasting a lot of money here. Let me move the show to Dallas. And I just moved the show to Dallas to a tiny studio and we, and we just kept expanding the show, just adding an element here and an element there, adding a male girl, doing a different set, you know, adding different features, recurring features that we would have, starting to have guests, you know, things like that. So it was just this organically developed show. And I've actually been doing the same show ever since. When I moved over to TNT, that was exactly the same show. It was just on more often because they had commercials. Right. <laughs> and then... Uh, and then when these guys came and wanted me to do a show for Shudder, I said, well, what are we going to do? You know, exact same show. We want to, we want you to do Monster Vision, same show you did on TNT. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're free, obviously, to just keep doing that format. Nobody's trying to keep you from, or, you know, to say, oh, no, wait, you, that we own that or whatever. You get to keep doing what you want to do. Well, who else would want it? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> there's not any great demand for this. Uh, I mean, I never even had any time limits, you know, yeah. either at the movie channel or at uh, TNT. It's its own genre of TV. <laughs> yeah. As long as we were finished at 6 a.m., they didn't care what we did. So, um, <laughs> And at both places, we, I was not a high priority. So they tended to leave me alone, you know, because that's just not the day part they're looking at. They're not looking at that late night stuff, or they weren't at the time. <laughs> the reason a lot of people liked the show, I think, is that they could tell it was kind of unformed. It was kind of, it was kind of like too informal for TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you were at Monster Vision for TNT, where did that shoot? Was that still in Dallas, or was that shooting in Atlanta? Or Yeah, I was like off the air for about two months, and... Uh, they had a format change at the movie channel, and so I was off the air. And then uh, two months later, TNT calls and says, hey, you want to do a show for us? Yeah, what kind of show? Oh, the same show you were doing. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, well, the, I've, I've still got the sets. And they said, really? Well, that'd save us a lot of money. And I said, yeah, just just come on down. You know, we've got everything you need. It's all, it's all still in storage here. So we'll just like set it up again. Oh, my so, God. That's uh, so, yeah, we, we just stayed in Dallas and kind of did the, a similar show. I mean, it was a little bit better. I mean, TNT spent more money than, than the movie channel had been spending. Now, technically, Joe Bob is, is a character that you created 
when you were a journalist, right? Yeah, it's an exaggerated version of me. You know, it's just a more interesting version of me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a writer. Writers aren't very interesting. And also, I've, I've become Joe Bob over the years because <laughs> at first I was writing under both names. I was writing under John Bloom. I still do. I just had a book last year under the name John Bloom. But um, I was writing a lot of magazine articles and editors would call me up and they would say, we want you to write this article. And I would say, John Bloom or Joe Bob? One time, uh, one of them called me up and, the, and I said, John Bloom or Joe Bob? And he said, who's John Bloom? <laughs> and and I, realized, I realized that Joe Bob had taken over. You know, Joe Bob <laughs> right. was a lot more interesting than, uh, you know, this stuffy investigative reporter, John Bloom. And so... <laughs> I kind of relaxed into it. Well, that's not a usual path for a lot of writers, especially. Uh, I mean, I, that was my degree as well, uh, reviewing movies and film criticism in college. And I know a lot of those people, they're not natural born performers. So how did you transition from uh, being a journalist and writer and a reviewer to being comfortable on camera and having those chops for performance. Well, it was kind of a baptism of fire because this guy <laughs> called me from Cleveland and he said, would you come and do a show? And um, I said, okay. I didn't have a show, but I said, okay, I'll do a show. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I can practice. I can like develop a show and I've never been to Cleveland. I don't know anybody in Cleveland. If I bomb in Cleveland, nobody will know. I'll just go to Cleveland and do this live show. And so he says, well, it's going to be in the uh, Berea, Ohio. Berea, Ohio is like right in the flight path of the Cleveland airport. Ohio Convention Center, which turns out to be Berea High School, the Berea <laughs> High School Auditorium. And so I'm thinking, okay, this is great. This is so obscure. Nobody will ever know I've been here. And so I get to Cleveland, and it's on the front entertainment page of um, USA Today. Oh, my God. Wow. And then all the six o'clock news things, you know, that Joe Bob Briggs is going to do a, a live show in Cleveland, actually in Berea. And so <laughs> suddenly there's like, uh, he's selling the tickets like crazy. There's like six or 700 people going to be there. And uh, I'm panicking. I had prepared the show completely the wrong way, which is memorize the whole show. Mm. And then I had these country western parody songs that I did. And uh, I had a band that backed me up. And so every time I would forget my lines and not know where the f I was in the show, I would go <laughs> to the country western song. I would just say, let's do that next song. <laughs> and go to the song and, and sing the song, try to remember where I was in the show, you know, and then go back to it. Well, the audience was so forgiving. And then I didn't know how to get off the stage. I, <laughs> the last song was a big sing-along, group sing-along. And so I went down into the audience. And then after the song was over and I was done, I said, well, that's it, people. I'm finished. And they all laughed. And I said, no, no, really, I'm finished. I'm done. I have nothing else to say. And they laughed again. <laughs> I said, okay, well, I'll see you guys next time. But I'm leaving. And I walked out the wrong end of the auditorium I walked out into the lobby <laughs> <laughs> they followed me into the lobby and I had to do 20 more minutes of material standing in the lobby with the crowd around me they thought you it know? was performance art huh? <laughs> yeah they thought I was doing an Andy Kaufman or something <laughs> right. no, I just walked out the wrong door <laughs> and so, uh, my first reaction to that was well I'm never doing this again this was terrifying <laughs> Then I thought, but, you know, maybe if I prepared, 
I could do this. <laughs> Maybe if I actually prepared a show, I could do this. And so it was like, I'll never be unprepared again. Oh, you know, wow. and yeah. uh, the audience was very forgiving. They knew it was my first time on stage. Thousands of people have told me that they were at that show. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but wait, how many people could have been there? Yeah, I mean, it was about 600 people. Yeah. You know, right. Any more than 600 have told me they were at that show. So it's in Cleveland that the show has a reputation, you know, or in Berea, at least. I've never heard of Berea. <laughs> you put Berea on the map just now for me. So, well, let me ask you this not knowing how to end, has that morphed into kind of the funny gag where you, during your presentations, at least on Shutter here, where you're, uh, you say, now let's get back to the movie, but you're not actually done. And then you keep, and you keep going <laughs> yeah. and there's more to it. That originally started because I would forget to make the point that I originally started out to make. <laughs> and, so, and so it was like, oh, don't turn the camera off yet. Let me finish. And then people would always write in and say, hey, you know, the best stuff happens after you're already done. I said, well, what do you mean? The stuff where I'm walking off the stage? You know, yeah. <laughs> so they said, let's just do that. Just leave that in. And so it just became a thing. It just feels like my comfortable rhythm. You know, it's like I have the prepared remarks. And then after the prepared remarks, uh, it's sort of free association you know, to, before we before we stop. So people like that. I still get, you know, emails from people saying, you know, your director, he it's a good thing that he doesn't turn the camera off when you say roll the movie. And I'm like, well, at this point, you know, it's a thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's a thing. You've been seeing all these web pages and social media gift guides this year? Yeah, they're everywhere. I told you our phones are listening to us. <laughs> uh, maybe. I'm beginning to think you're right, man. Well, you know what I've noticed about all of those gift guides? What? Our Quip electric toothbrushes are on a ton of them. Well, that makes sense. Most folks probably don't think of an electric toothbrush like that, but it's really a perfect gift for everyone with a mouth. And it's something they'll use twice every day. Everyone with a mouth. Yeah, so that's like everyone in the world except for Neo in that one scene in The Matrix. <laughs> oh, okay, yes, you're right. One of my favorite things about Quip is how easy it is to travel with. And at this time of year, we're all traveling, like it or not, right? Quip makes the experience clean and easy with a multi-use cover that mounts to mirrors and unmounts to slide over the bristles for on-the-go brushing. And on top of that, it has a lifetime warranty. The other thing that makes it a great gift is you can get it in different colors for everyone on your list. They have four sleek metallic handles, two poppy plastics, a red brush that gives back, and a statement-making black brush. It's been a relief not to have to worry about replacing the brush head, and I'm also glad to be done with the bulky brush and charger I used to have with the long cord on my bathroom counter. That counter's got enough junk on it. Oh, you mean all of your lotions and salves. Yeah, my salves. <laughs> Quip runs for three months on a single charge. It's the gift that keeps refreshing, too. New brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months for just $5. And you can even gift prepaid refills for a year to make sure your friends and loved ones are never using old, worn out, or ineffective bristles. It looks like a big ticket tech gift, but with a stocking stuffer price, starting at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com legends right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. But you don't have to tell your giftee that. Just remember, you get your first refill pack free at G-E-T. Q-U-I-P dot com slash legends. 
You know, Mrs. Claus sometimes has a hard time finding the perfect gift for the man who has everything. Well, he doesn't have everything. I mean, he makes everything for other people. Ah, well, couldn't he just grab whatever he wanted, you know, like it fell off the sleigh? Oh, yeah, right. No, it's Santa <laughs> Claus, man. Well, either way, we all know Mrs. Claus loves Santa, and finding the right holiday gift for a guy like him can feel nearly impossible. It's also pretty hard to put one over on him, but you know what would make the perfect gift for a bearded saint like him? Harry's. Harry's makes long-lasting quality products at a fair price. It's a practical gift that Santa, or your Santa at home, will actually use. Their German-engineered blades are as low as $2 each, so we can save money on blade refills, too. And Mrs. Claus won't have to lift a finger because it comes ready to gift. And I'm sure she wants him to shave that neck down, too. In fact, you can see some pictures of one of their gift sets on our social media now if you want to check it out. As a special offer for fans of the show, we've partnered with Harry's to give you $5 off any shave set, including their limited edition holiday sets, when you go to harrys.com slash legends. Plus, you'll get free shipping. This offer is for new and returning customers and is only available for the holidays. Each Harry's shaving set comes with an ergonomic weighted handle with an option to engrave, German-engineered fine-blade cartridges that provide a close, comfortable shave, foaming shave gel for a rich lather, a travel cover to protect your blades, and a handsome holiday gift box. Or just want something for yourself? Redeem a Harry's trial offer to experience the quality of shave before committing. Get your holiday shopping done early. Free shipping ends on December 12th, so act now. Go to harrys.com slash legends to get $5 off a shave set while supplies last. That's harrys.com slash legends. Hi, I'm Cortina, and when I'm not having margaritas on Monday nights with the Mothman, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show. I mean, it seems like the show, you evolved it uh, pretty organically, as you just said. Like, are you operating in a vacuum creatively, or did you uh, do you have any experience with, or were you ever exposed to, like, Goulardi, or anybody that was doing this kind of stuff, you know, back before you? Not really. To me, because of my previous career as a writer, it was all about the movie. And so I, I based all my material on the movie. I tried to talk about things that were directly related to the movie. You know, there's sort of two schools of hosting. One is you do sketches that have little or no relation to the movie. You know, this sort of like comedy material at each break. And the other thing is, you're totally devoted to the movie, you know, the opposite of that. And so I was always in the second school of late night hosting, which is everything has to go back to the movie. Everything's about the movie. Everything's, even if I go off on a rant, it should somehow be remotely related to the movie. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. <laughs> so I regarded it as a form of gonzo criticism, gonzo film criticism. Oh, sure. By the way, neither style is better than the other. Right. Elvira is sort of at the other end of the spectrum. She's just funny. Right, you know? right. And uh, kind of goofs on the movie. MST3K, they kind of use the movie as a jumping off point for comedy. And mine was more... Let's take the movie intensely seriously. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I think that's really what sets you apart from other commentators and hosts for movie marathons. And what I appreciate myself is that you genuinely know a lot about these movies and the history of, of film and the genre and attributed to a lot of your other writing. But did you start off wanting to be a sports writer? And how did that shift to movies? 
I became a sports writer when I was 13 years old, you know, back in the old days when newspapers would hire apprentice copy boys. And mm-hmm. when they would hire you as an apprentice copy boy, you weren't really a copy boy. You, you were hired to be a cheap way to have an additional writer on the staff. Mm. You know, you were essentially a writer that they didn't have to pay anything. And so from the first day on the job at the Arkansas Democrat in Little Rock, Arkansas, I was um, writing uh, six, seven, eight articles a day and uh, it was in the sports department and so after school I would go and cover sports events and that was fine and it was good because I got a scholarship based on the sports writing you know I went to college on a sports writing scholarship actually but after I'd been through the seasons four or five times (laughs) (laughs) they all seemed to like to me and I especially didn't like getting yelled at by coaches and yeah. all these things you have to go through. Is a, it's kind of humiliating to be a sports writer. <laughs> like, the coaches hate you, you know, yeah. especially the college coaches. I don't know really? why. They don't want to be at the press conference. They don't want to talk to you. They don't want to answer any questions. They think you're a smart ass. They don't like that you, if you have long hair, they don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> Everything about these coaches in football, basketball, name the sport. They don't like the press. They don't like the press. Even though they're in the entertainment business, Yeah, they need the press to get people into the stands. But you're the guy who is irritating them all the time. You know? <laughs> and it's just, like, it's just like a nasty atmosphere that you're in all the time as a sports writer. I just wanted to do a little bit broader things than, <laughs> right. than going through the sports se- same sports seasons every year. They have this scholarship at Vanderbilt called the Grantland Rice Scholarship where they choose a one high school sports writer a year to get this full tuition scholarship. The guy who won it the year before me and kind of helped me while I was at Vanderbilt is a guy named Skip Bayless, who um, is a famous sports commentator. He was on ESPN for a while. He was, he's now on Fox Sports. He was like a lifer, like a sports lifer. But most of us who won that scholarship went into other fields, as they say. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't so much that I was devoted to sports writing. It was just that that was what was available to me when I was a kid. Right. That's kind of how I learned to write. And also, sports writing has changed a lot. At that time, they called it the toy department at the paper. It was was considered (laughs) kind of the the lowest of the low at the paper. (laughs) Now it's like a really prestigious thing to be a big hot sports writer and you got to know statistics and yeah. you know you, you got to know all this um, all these algorithms and stuff and right. at the time it was more just you just had to be an entertaining writer. Yeah. It was good training at the time wouldn't be so good training today cuz yeah, <laughs> everything, right. everything has changed. Yeah. But that was a uh, a natural way for you to then, you know, as you were losing interest in doing the grinding sports beat there to tap into your love of film and the genre in particular or how did that transition yeah. happen? Well, I just became a general assignment reporter. I did a lot of investigative reporting just cuz I was curious about everything and uh, worked for some magazines and newspapers. Eventually, I settled into film because it was more fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And at the time that I started reviewing exploitation films, I was the only guy in the country doing it because yeah. they were considered beneath contempt right. by mainstream media, and they were just considered kind of disposable. You just didn't review those films. Right. Uh, right. Mainstream papers did not review those films. So by just giving them attention at all, my job was in jeopardy. You know, yeah, <laughs> right. 
I had a column called Joe Bob Goes to the Drive-In. When I launched it, I conspired with the uh, entertainment editor to find a really obscure place in the paper to put it so that the editors, the high sheriffs at the paper, wouldn't see it because editors don't read their own paper. They look at the front page. They look at the front sports page. That's about it. They don't read it. And so we figured we'll see how many weeks we can get this thing in the paper before they notice it. And maybe we'll have enough support for it by the time they notice it, that it'll stay in. And so sure enough, that's exactly what happened. It took him about two months to notice it was in there. And by that time we had a lot of favorable fan mail and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how we got it launched. And that's, what's interesting too. I think, you know, you, it seems like, there's been a consistent underestimation for what you provide. It's like you're, well, they didn't care when you went off the air as long as you were off by 6 a.m., that sort of thing. And it seems like uh, apparently Shudder underestimated you as well because that first marathon crashed all their servers, right? We not only crashed the Shudder servers, we crashed the Sundance Channel servers. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But I was happy about that. I was happy about that. But anyway, I mean, I was surprised. I mean, it's a 20-year-old format. You know, I was saying to the producers, you know, maybe we can do this one time for nostalgia, but I think we're going to have to come up with something new if we do anything (laughs) beyond this. And they were like, no, 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 this is what we want to do. They were fans of Monster Vision. So we kind of did a version of the old show, and uh, sure enough, there was an audience for it. Now, partly that's because... Of YouTube, I give YouTube some credit for that. Uh-huh. Normally, uh, younger people wouldn't have known that the show ever existed, except that so many episodes of it were uploaded to YouTube that they watched the old episodes on YouTube, and right. so it gave me an additional generation of viewers yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have otherwise had. And a lot of those uh, millennials, post millennials, um, they say. Why don't we have something like this? Yeah. What happened to horror hosting? What happened to movie hosting? What happened? And I say, well, you know, it's kind of easy to explain what happened. There was a time when um, an hour of TV was 46 minutes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or even 48 minutes. And today it's like, I think it's 41 and a half or something like that. I said, there's just not enough time in there for a a host in addition to the movie, you know. They went crazy with the amount of commercials they'll put in in an hour of TV. A lot of the cable channels kind of committed suicide, you know, at at the point when they really needed to retain viewers. They further alienated viewers by loading up with more and more commercials. Of course, I didn't care about the commercials because I came on at the commercial breaks. So (laughs) you kind of know this when you watch a movie on TV, you kind of subliminally know it, but you don't really know it. When you see how they decide where the commercials go in a movie, you realize how smart they are about manipulating you. Like the first break of a movie is always between about 22 and 28 minutes into the movie. That's a lot of movie before you get that first commercial, you know? So they make sure that that hook is in you. (laughs) You Yeah. Yeah, you're good and invested. Then as the movie goes on, the time between breaks gets shorter and shorter and shorter yeah. <laughs> until, until you can interrupt three times in the final climactic sequence, you know, not quite that bad. But there were seven or eight commercial breaks in each movie. And they said, uh, 
how many times do you want to be on during the movie? And I was like, I don't know. Let's, let's just give it a shot. And uh, like uh, the first time I do it, I'll be on it every break. And then we'll see if that's too much. And we'll cut it back. Well, I was on it every break for the rest of my time at TNT. <laughs> <laughs> I remember watching it and just being like amazed. I enjoyed it so much. I was at my grandmother's house yeah. and she had this gold shag carpet that was like two inches tall. It was ridiculous. And I would lay down there and uh, it was like a bed on the floor and just watch as much Monster Vision as I could consume. It was like amazing. I actually want to ask you some questions about the genre that you're, you know, an okay. expert in now. This was a question that I had just today because I didn't think about this. Do you know where the origin of B-movie came from, the expression B or grade B-movie? Yeah, in the 1930s, when the Depression hit, people stopped going to the movies. And so the studios had to find some way to uh, get families back into the theaters at low rates because people didn't have any money. And so what they did is they designed these programs where you could spend four or five hours at the theater with your whole family. And what that would be is you would have an A movie, a B movie, a newsreel, a cartoon, and usually some other kind of short feature. And so the B movie was normally, uh, you know, made on the cheap, obviously. It's just to fill out the program. And sometimes it wouldn't even be what we call feature length today. It would just be 60 minutes, 65 minutes, 70 minutes, something like that. And those would be, you know, cheap westerns, cheap thrillers. Ronald Reagan was in a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, played a, he played a Secret Service agent. I forget his name. And uh, serials, you know. So they developed these units, production units on the studio lot that were in charge of producing the B-movies. You're supposed to produce them cheap and fast. And so it kind of became shorthand for cheap movie or bad movie. Now, Roger Corman, who I consider the greatest exploitation producer director ever, um, I said to him one time, somebody called him King of the Bees. And I said, Roger, what do you think about being called King of the Bees? And he said, I really don't like that. And I said, why? And he says, because it implies that there's an A movie and a B movie, and I'm a, I only make the B movie, and it's inferior to the A movie. He says, I make mm -hmm. movies cheap, but they're not inferior to the A movie. And I said, what do you think about being called the king of the exploitation film? And he said, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know he's a marketer? He's a great marketer. Exactly. Why do B movies appeal to you personally? Because uh, they were outlaw. They were things you weren't supposed to watch. They were things your mother didn't want you to see. In Texas, they only showed at the drive-in. They didn't even show in normal, respectable theaters, you know. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and so, um, you know, in the big cities, they showed in the grindhouses. In the South, they showed at drive-ins. But um, I liked them because they had forbidden content, you know, what at right. the time would have been considered forbidden content, which is mostly sex and violence of one sort or another in, in various genres. In my opinion, all movies revolve around sex and violence. It's just that the A movies call it romance and adventure. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. This is another thing that I thought was really interesting, especially watching your Dinners of Death, <laughs> yeah. uh, your most recent uh, appearance on Shudder. The opening monologue for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it's really the bigot monologue. I just loved it. It was so hilarious. And I guess what I'm wondering is, 
how are you getting away in this age of like extreme political correctness? You're walking that line and you just, do you stay out of trouble? Because that was just an amazing monologue. I really enjoyed it. I don't know. I expect to be fired any minute. (laughs) I've been fired uh, so many times and I've gone through so many of those different types of battles. Here's the difference though today. When I started out, they would say, you can't say that, you can't say this, you can't say that because the older conservative generation reacts negatively to it. Today, when they say you can't say that, you can't do that, whatever, it's like the young people don't like that job. (laughs) It's a university campus kind of thing where there are all these rules about what you can say. And And there's active efforts to say that words should be censored, you know, that speech should be censored. And so my question is, I'm a baby boomer. You know, yes. Yeah. When do we get to be pissed off? Right. When's that time? <laughs> right. <laughs> When's that time to complain? You know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why we're we're returning to Puritanism, and we get all these public scolds and these um, people that want to police what's said, and they say, "Well, I agree with you, Joe Bob, but not on hate speech." And I'm like, "Why not on hate speech?" I said, "I want to know what that guy is thinking. I don't want. I don't want to say." Shut him up. You know, let's find out what he's thinking, you know? Yeah. yeah. White supremacist. I want him to identify himself as a white supremacist. So let him talk. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that's the American way. Let him talk. Let him talk himself into the grave, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know this thing about don't let people talk. That's yeah. crazy in this country, you know? Absolutely. Well, do you think that uh, the genre of the old campy B movies is kind of a way for this new generation to experience a non-safe place, but in a safe way. So much about those movies is not PC or considered safe, but it's a way to experience that and have it contained. That may be true, um, hence the uh, worship of the 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) People who were barely alive in the 80s revere the 80s. Yeah, there was a lot of crap in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, oh, sure. Oh, yeah. It's like, I, I don't understand this romanticizing the 80s, but VHS had just come into its own. It was the first time you had home entertainment. So the powers that be in the movie industry didn't know what, what exactly to do. And so you had all these different kinds of movies all coming out at the same time. And some of them were really, really cheap but they could all get distribution. You know, there was this period mm-hmm. where almost anything, you know, you can make it on Monday, edit it on Tuesday, it's in the video store on Wednesday. Mm-hmm. You know, it was that kind of hectic uh, filmmaking world. And so you got all this interesting stuff. I mean, what do you have in the walk-in theaters today? You've got uh, Marvel and DC. Yeah. Right, yeah, <laughs> that's <it>. right. <laughs> that's it. You've got uh, comics and uh there's just not the variety that there used to be. You know, occasionally you have a, a big budget comedy, you know, with Vince Vaughn in it. That's your indie film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's boring to people. And so they want to go back to this time where there was um, hundreds of choices. Back when Blockbuster was still around, I remember renting, uh, and now I can't, I don't think, I think I was too afraid to watch it all the way through. I remember renting Make Them Die Slowly. Oh, yeah. Great one. Great one. That was from the short live cannibal reality genre. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah. Almost all of them were made in Italy. And the plots were always the same. Sociology professor at NYU wants to go figure out what makes cannibals tick. And so they go into the uh, 
Amazon jungle and become dinner for a bunch of animals. <laughs> right. You know. Become dinner. And that, that's in what I remember. In the meantime, you, you have all these graphic scenes of uh, horrible primitive rites and uh, different ways to kill people. Uh, it, was, right. it was not a genre that lasted. Yeah. Yeah. There were some powerful movies made all in, I would say, like late 70s, early 80s, and almost all of them made in Italy. Made in the jungle, but by Italians. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that I specifically rented it because it said on the box, banned in 41 countries or something. Right, right. And then I also remember worrying that I would be on some kind of list that Blockbuster kept. Oh. Wow, <laughs> that was that was advanced thinking. <laughs> it was just like, how is this even in the store, you know? Yeah. Or, but that's um, the pirate nature of film. Yeah, it was a which, cool feeling. Yeah. To do that, that's what I'm saying. Right. You know, well, that, that, you that's know. yeah. That ties in. Is there a particular subgenre within this genre that you are particularly fond of, or you think resonates now, or, or is still relevant? Almost all horror films that are made today have some comedy element. Horror mm -hmm. comedy became almost the dominant subgenre. Which I think is actually a sign of decadence. It's not yeah. a good thing. Right. It's much easier to make a horror comedy than it is to make a movie that genuinely finds our primal fears and exposes them in the movie and mm -hmm. executes the movie correctly so that you're genuinely afraid. You know, that's hard. Yeah. Constantly undercutting the terror with comedy, you know, that's not so hard. You know, right. you, you can cheat in a dozen ways. But for some reason, this generation of filmmakers, meaning filmmakers under the age of 40, they love the horror comedy. And it's almost yeah. as though they don't take horror seriously. Right. Now, Guillermo del Toro does. Yeah, you know, yeah. and there are a few guys who do. You have this raft of it's like I hope people are sick of it. But I've been saying for ten years that zombies are over. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and not not and quite not over. Yeah, <laughs> for years we just had like five zombie films. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> and then overnight we had a thousand. You know, we watched your interview on Cinemassacre from not too long ago. Yeah. One of the things that you said on that that I thought was really interesting was uh, there is no more L.A. In reference to the myth that you, you got to get out to L.A. and work your way up to become a filmmaker. Everything that you said about the barrier to entry being so much lower really resonated with me. Forrest and I actually are both former editors. I used to cut TV commercials. When I started, an Avid was $150,000, you know, and so... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just crazy how all that stuff has dropped, which was kind of bad for my career. <laughs> Yeah, but, yeah. The, you know, the traditional Now anybody can do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, you made the really good point that high-quality product is really inexpensive to produce. And so why do you think there aren't more folks out doing that? And where do you think that's going to evolve to well, for the landscape of, there, of the big picture? There are a lot of people who are doing that. I occasionally do seminars and panels with young filmmakers and try to get them motivated and whatever. But what you don't have, if you're making movies in um, Midland, Texas or Boise, Idaho or where, whatever, what you don't have there is you don't have the Roger Corman guy. You don't have the producer right. guy yeah. who can take your film to market. When a young filmmaker tells me he's an aspiring filmmaker and say, well, I'm not going to talk to you until you're not aspiring anymore. Tell me you're a filmmaker, and then I'll talk to you. You know, I said, don't go around saying you're an aspiring filmmaker. You're a filmmaker. Get up every day and be a filmmaker. So that's the first thing they have to overcome is they feel like they're inferior because they live in Columbia, South Carolina, whatever. You know, that makes them aspiring. So you stop that aspiring, shit. you know, and then the second thing is 
They want to make it to L.A. Don't go to L.A. You don't have to go to L.A. You're already in L.A. You're already in a place where you can access everything you need to make your movie, sell your movie, get your movie noticed. You know, you don't need any of that. So forget L.A. Or better yet, take a weekend trip with me to L.A. I'll introduce you to all the lonely, broken people that are doing what you don't have to do. (laughs) (laughs) The fact that the technology is no longer expensive, it's just like being a novelist. To be a novelist, you just need a pen and paper. You don't need anything else. And so that's almost true. You need a few things, but you don't need anything that's so expensive that you can't find some way to get it. Yeah. And so now, uh, if you want to be a filmmaker, then get out there and be a filmmaker. I thought we would actually have more indie films than we have. What we have now is a lot of indie films that the production values are okay, but they fail on the story level. They fail on the script level. And so when these guys say, well, Joe, Bob, I, you know, I hope you like my film. You know, we didn't have enough money. If we had more money, we just, I was like, well, the thing that's wrong with your film has nothing to do with money, bud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The thing that costs no money is what sunk your film. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it looks good, you know? He yeah. said, you shouldn't have cast your cousin. That's one thing. That <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but, uh, so you got to go to some kind of film school. And by that, I don't mean you have to go to NYU or USC. If you're really smart, you can teach yourself off the internet, but you got to go to some kind of training to learn the basics of telling a story. And um, if you can't write, then collaborate with somebody who can write. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't try to do everything. Don't try to be the writer, director, cinematographer. Don't try to do everything. You know, yeah. there have been five people in history who could do that. You're not one of them. Right. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and so uh, do the thing that you can do and collaborate. It's a collaborative art form. It's like uh, starting a garage band. Yeah. You might have to fire three bass players before you find the one that you can work with. Right. <laughs> but um, that's the world we live in now. And uh, I wish more people would be more optimistic about it instead of trying to push these old models that don't really work anymore. I noticed on your bio it mentions that you were nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for your coverage of 9-11, which is not something I knew about you. I think it's really interesting. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the story behind that? Well, I was living in an apartment building on Duane Street, which is a few blocks north of the Twin Towers. I heard the explosion of the first plane, which went into uh, Tower 1, I think, uh-huh. from the north. From my window, I could see the whole thing. I could see that the plane was halfway into the building. It was burning, whatever. And so I instantly turned on the um, news. And CNN, (laughs) I don't think they admit this, but CNN was reporting that uh, apparently, you know, a commercial airliner had lost its way, Uh gone off the radar or something. And so there was this terrible accident. They were doing it as an accident. Well, Anybody who had been in New York for very long knew that they'd already tried to blow up the Twin Towers about you know six or seven years before, and we all yeah. knew the story of that. And so uh, anybody who was paying attention knew that the most likely explanation was somebody's trying to blow up the towers again. Yeah. And then I saw the second plane, and the second plane, I don't know if you remember this, but he went way out over the Statue of Liberty. He came down the... Hudson River, and he went way out over the Statue of Liberty, 
right about the Statue of Liberty turned, or a little bit past that he turned, you know, and, and he did a he did a 180 and he started back towards the other tower and he started going lower and lower and lower. And so I'm watching him. And from my angle, it looks a little scary because it looks like maybe he's coming towards me. You can't, I'm far enough away that you can't tell exactly what his target is. And he gets about uh, five seconds away from the tower and he jerks the uh, wheel to about a 45 degree angle. So he'll go in at an angle, you know, hit more floors, I guess. Yeah. I thought that was the most chilling thing of all, the way he was planning it right up until his own moment of death. I started taking pictures, and uh, I didn't realize what I was taking pictures of. Some of the people that were jumping out of the building uh-huh. turned up later on the pictures I'd taken. I didn't see them at the time. And then I thought, I got to get out of here. We don't know how many of these planes are out there. Right. This building might be next. You couldn't get cell reception down there because the cell towers were on top of one of those uh, buildings. And so I just started walking uptown. And when I finally got to uh, Greenwich Village, I called uh, UPI because I was working for UPI at the time. I was a columnist for him. John O'Sullivan was the editor. And I said, well, John, I don't know what's going on in Washington, but uh, I just saw the whole thing. What do you want? And he says, write it up and then go back down there. <laughs> so, wow. so I wrote up an eyewitness account. And then uh, I went back down there every day for, I don't know, three weeks. And... Um, I had roadblocks up and I didn't have any press credentials, any special press credentials. And so I just had to wind my way through Chinatown, sneak in from the side every day Uh and (laughs) see (laughs) what was going on and did a series of articles that UPI submitted them as a Pulitzer nomination. But uh, just happened that I was uh, an eyewitness and being an old spot news guy from earlier in my career. You know, I just said, you want me to cover this? And they're like, oh, yeah, get all over that. So <laughs> that was, mm. <laughs> that's how that happened. Wow, that's amazing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be looking for those articles. I'm, I'm only just now getting to the point where I can revisit it, I guess. You know, it's, it's, I can't imagine what it must have been like for you. Being that close. Yeah, yeah. emotionally. And, and seeing it every day. And, you know, after well, you know, I don't get all choked up every 9-11 like a lot of people do. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe because I was just like fully through with it by the time it was all over like i've never been to the 9-11 museum i don't really want to go there yeah. it would just depress me you know yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah obviously i mean it, it was a horrible thing it was a one-of-a-kind thing it was something that i hope never happens to us again but i don't like us continually having mem- grief memorial days i think we should celebrate our victories and not our defeats mm-hmm. and uh you know go down there and have a little prayer but don't make yeah, a big yeah. deal about it Something like they do at Pearl Harbor. You know, they go there yeah. every year, but it's not a 60-point headline, right. you know, about yeah. what they're doing this year at Pearl Harbor. We come down to our last question here and uh, where an intersection might be for uh, some of our listeners and your personal beliefs and fears, if you have any. Because, I mean, you've seen every <laughs> horror film, every kind of way that anybody can be horribly killed on in a movie or whatever. You've seen all that stuff. Do you have... Is there anything that does inspire like genuine fear in you? And then it's a two-part question. And then the second part is, have you ever personally experienced anything that you would classify as paranormal or supernatural? Well, to answer the second question first, no. Okay. I haven't. Uh, <laughs> um, 
I mean, when I was a kid and I was in the Boy Scouts, I mean, we would always see specters in the woods at night, you know, when oh, we were camping out. Yeah. You know, so, so there's that kind of fear, you know, that's it's just caused by darkness and shadows. And but seeing Bigfoot or something like that, no. Do you ever watch one of these movies and you're like, oh, this is actually scaring me? You know, do you ever um, feel that no, way? No, I, I do get scared. I mean, I usually get scared by small things. I mean... You can do so much with a camera that recreates the psychological sense of of being vulnerable. You know, you can make any actor vulnerable with how he's shot with a camera. And so, yeah, I mean, a shadow on the wall can scare me if it comes at the right moment. (laughs) You know, some of the scariest moments in horror happen inside lonely houses. Yeah, yeah. It's right. not even a lot of special effects. It's just some uh, strange angles and some unexpected people in the in the frame at an unexpected time. So, yeah, yeah all that stuff scares me. If you're in the hands of a master storyteller, you're going to be scared. Yeah. <laughs> have right. you ever thought about directing? You know, I briefly thought about it, and I don't have the patience for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have been on a lot of movie sets, and I have yeah. known a lot of directors, and I have been around the process a lot and director is a special breed i mean there are 60 million details painstaking details in directing a film and that's not me that's not me from (laughs) i would be a better producer than i would be a director yeah you know yeah making creative people comfortable and able to do their jobs so i would do that but i wouldn't i don't think i would ever direct well, what about screenplays? Have you ever uh, dabbled in that or something that's uh, more narrative or dramatic? I have. I have a couple of unproduced ones, but uh, it's a specialized form of writing. Yeah. It's one of the most difficult right. forms of writing because it's so compact. I don't remember who said it. I think it was Mark Twain who said, uh, you know, he wrote a letter to his family and he said, Sorry about the letter being so long. I didn't have time to write a short one. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the nature of screenwriting is like a screenplay is so short that everything about it is horribly difficult. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And as you can tell from my shows, I talk forever. You know, it's like I can't <laughs> well, wait, we're, make a movie intro short. So well, that's we have the same problem with our show. We get to say everything you know we want, so our our episodes are quite long. And fortunately, I think more like it than don't. But that's an offshoot of uh, or byproduct of saying everything you want. And that's why we love your interstitials when you're hosting, because you go on and say everything you want. It seems that's the thing about podcasting. We're the equivalent of the TNT. They just wanted you off by six a.m. Yeah. No one can tell us when to stop, right? <laughs> which is that's its pluses and its minuses. So, Joe Bob, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. It has been so great to actually talk to you in person. I never dreamed that I would get that opportunity uh, back when I was watching you on Monster Vision. We're loving the stuff that you're doing over at Shudder. Uh, I take it it's it's been such a hit. You've crashed the servers, broke the internet. You've got <laughs> some new stuff coming down the pike, right, for uh, Christmas. Yeah, well, we did the Thanksgiving Dinners of Death thing, and now we're going to yep. do a Christmas show called A Very Joe Bob Christmas on <laughs> December 21st at uh, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. 
Pacific. Even though we're a streaming service, we do these as live events because people like to get on the social media and, you know, like we're all watching together. Oh, yeah. I love that. And yeah. um, it's kind of against the religion of streaming, but we do it anyway. You right, know, it's like right. appointment TV. They don't let me tell the titles, but they're probably not the titles you would expect for a Christmas marathon. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is what we'd be which hoping for. Yeah. You know, because everybody does the same titles every Christmas. Yeah. But, uh, we got that coming up, and um, we call it a mini marathon because it's just four movies. But it really does go dusk to dawn because I talk so much. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, if you're streaming it live, that means you're not pre-taping. You got to ride that out too. All four movies. Oh, and yeah, 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 yeah. No second takes. You know, <laughs> what you see is what you get. Yeah. <laughs> thanks again for coming on the show, and uh, hopefully our listeners will go check that out. So, thanks for coming on the show. It was really great having you on. All right, thanks. I'm happy to do it. All right, right. right, bye. Bye Bye-bye. That's going to wrap up this episode of Astonishing Legends. We'll be back next week with the first of the final two shows of the year with special guest Rich Haddam. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Petra Helikiopoulos. Hi, I'm Elijah Hershey. Hi, I'm Cretina, and, and I, I give permission, permission to Astonishing Legends to use my voice however they see fit. I understand that there is... I understand this is with no implied promise of present or future compensation. Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell, and our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>